In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So Merry Western Christmas. Before we start, actually, I figured we can, uh, you know, talk about why why does the, in the West is the Christmas celebrated on a different day than in the Coptic Church? Does anyone know why? Different calendar. Okay, so who, so how did it all happen? Some guy named Julian. Who is Julian? Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Like he's on the great the first calendar, like one a.m. Okay, and then after the great schism, the Catholic Church like said there's a miscalculation, and so during the Pope Gregory. I don't know, not remember which one. Yeah. Like he he created the Gregorian calendar, like to fix the calculation. But since it's after the schism, we're the Orthodox Church. We don't care what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 1582, Pope Gregory, who was a Catholic pope, not him personally, but under him, yeah. they discovered that the calendar that they had was not exactly matching astronomically of what was happening. So they made a change to the calendar. So essentially. Um, they skipped in the they skipped forward 11 days okay at the time and so those 11 days are completely wiped off the calendars like they they were skipped that year right so the church then either had the option to maintain the existing calendar right that all of the feasts and seasons of the church were matching up with or to just just do essentially what pope gregory said and the rest of like the civil authorities and essentially everybody else followed which was to change the calendar as well so the Christmas day, according to the Julian calendar, is what day? Not the 7th, the 25th. So December 25th, which is what we currently celebrate here in the West as Christmas day, right? But the church is using the original calendar. So that's why it's not the 25th, it's January 7th. But according to the Julian calendar, it's the 25th. So prior to that change, everybody celebrated Christmas on December 25th of the Julian calendar. And then when Pope Gregory changed the calendar, right, now suddenly what was December 25th is now a different day. So for us, it, it, there was a, that offset that was introduced. And approximately every 80 or so years, um, there's one more day differential between the two calendars that gets added. So right now, the Christmas is on typically is on January 7th on most days, on most years. Um, and eventually, it'll become January 8th, January 9th, January 10th, and it'll just keep going. Okay, so that day is not fixed because the the, 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 the the Julian year and the Gregorian year are not the same length. The right? Coptic calendar is following the Julian. Coptic calendar is following the Julian calendar. So right. That's not why this this coming up nativity piece is supposed to be January eighth? No, so that's because this is a, a leap year. Okay, so this this year <laughs> so so leap years happen every four years, right? So what year what Coptic year is it? 1736. 1736, right? So 1736 is a leap year, okay? Every four years is a leap year. So because it's a leap year, the first of Tut, which is the first day of the Coptic year, was on what day? September 12th. It's usually September 11th, right? We always know that the Coptic New Year is on September 11th. This year, the Coptic New Year was on September 12th, okay? So because the first of Tut is now September 12th, every single occasion, right, is off by a day, right, including the nativity, okay, until when, when does it get fixed? Lent? No, not Lent, 
No. Oh, Apostle Frost? No. Uh, the, like Saturday? No. So, so the Gregorian year is also a leap year, right? 2020 is a leap year. So what happens on a leap year? February 29th. 29th. So now you've got adding February 29th. So essentially after February 29th, because you added a day in the Coptic, now you're adding a day in the... In the in the in the Gregorian, so now it cancels itself back out again. So everything else after that point is now back to normal for another three years, right? Um, and then it happens again. Okay. So I, I just have a little bit of question. So even though the Gregorian Catholic and they discovered all of this, they don't celebrate January seventh. They celebrate December twenty-fifth, like Catholics. Mm-hmm. So but because did, because they changed because they, so they changed it but they never followed January seventh. <coughs> no, so because they updated the calendars, they said that December twenty fifth, right, is still the day they want to celebrate. But December twenty fifth is now a different day than it used to be. So why did they, they go through all of the trouble? And if they're already deciding they will celebrate. So the, the, the study of the calendar wasn't based on when we're going to celebrate Christmas. It was based on astronomically if the calendar that they had matches astronomy, right? And so they discovered that it's not exactly matching, right? So they updated it and created what's now known as the Gregorian calendar, which is what is used commonly, right? So, so because they adopted that new calendar, then all of the feasts of the church are now going to shift to adopt that calendar, okay? Okay, that was just an aside. Okay, today we're going to, we're not going to speak. So we had two chapters left of the book of Judges, which God willing, we will cover next week. Today we're going to have just a, a different a different topic, kind of more related to the season of the nativity. Um, so we read about um, in Luke chapter 1, which is, if you're familiar, in the, in the, in the month of Kiech, which we're in, all of the gospel readings are from Luke chapter 1. Okay. Uh, we essentially read the entire chapter of Luke chapter 1. Every week of the four weeks of the month of Kiak, we read uh, the next part, right? And so we read here in verses 78 and 79, right? This is um, after St. John the Baptist was circumcised. Um, Zacharias, the priest, which is St. John's father, he begins to prophesy, okay? And he begins to speak about the Messiah. Remember, the whole mission of St. John the Baptist the son of Zacharias the priest, is all wrapped up in preparing uh, the world for the coming of the Messiah. Okay? So here he says what, this is Zacharias the priest speaking. He says, Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay? So Christ's purpose in coming was what? To bring light to those in darkness. This is what it was saying. God came to bring light to those in darkness. Okay? So Christ wants the salvation of all people. It's like imagine all the entire world is living in darkness, and Christ wants the people to see. Right? But imagine that you are like in a completely pitch black room, right? Where you can't see anything at all. Okay? Um, but in addition to being in a dark room, also your eyes are closed, right? So if someone were now to turn on the lights, but your eyes are still closed, can you see? You can't see, right? So this kind of tells us a little bit about what is the relationship 
between man's part of salvation versus God's part, right? So in, in a dark room, you, you're the one who has control over your eyes, okay? So if you're in a completely pitch black room and you open your eyes and you're looking around, you still can't see anything. There's nothing you can do to see, right? Which is an analogy for what prior to the coming of Christ, there was nothing that anyone could do for salvation, right? Because we had sinned, we became separated from God, and there was no way for us through our own work and effort to be reconciled to God again. So as much as we were opening our eyes, as much we were trying to see, as much as we were trying to do anything for being reconciled to God, there was no way to be reconciled because we were still living in darkness, okay? But when Christ comes, right, and he redeems us through his blood, it's like now he, what, he turned on the lights, Right. This is why it says what to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Right. So these people who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death in the midst is pitch black. Now, suddenly they 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 those who have their eyes open are able to see it, which is why some people saw the Christ. They saw him. They understood him. They believed in him. They followed him. The disciples, the apostles, all these people in the New Testament, they immediately identified who Christ was and they followed him. Why? Because their eyes were open. Right. You know, they could see, they could hear, they knew him. But just because now the light in the room has been turned on, there are still those people who wish to continue with their eyes shut. And to those people with their eyes shut, it doesn't matter how bright the room is. It doesn't matter how much light there is in the room, because in the end, they still cannot see because they haven't done their part of salvation. Okay, so we ask this question then, if what Christ is asking us to do, what is our role in this salvation is he's asking us to open our eyes. This is what we mean when we say, when we speak about things like spirituality. What does it mean to be spiritual, right? What does it mean to be spiritual when we use that word, which can mean so many things to different people. What does it mean to be spiritual? To be spiritual means that we open our eyes, okay? So that we attain all of the benefit of the light that Christ himself is shining on us so that we can see it, we perceive it, we benefit from it, you know, and we ourselves feel drawn closer to the source of this light, who is God himself. Okay, so this is the spiritual light. And Christ said what he says in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, let him take up his cross and follow me. So what is it that Christ is telling his people? Like if you want to, you know, if you want to have life, if anyone desires to have life, let him take up his cross and follow me. So this is like a description of what Christ is telling. This is what is necessary for us to open our eyes, right? This is what is necessary for us to become spiritual is to deny ourselves, right? Because spirituality is very much related to this discipleship that Christ is calling us for. If you want to come after me, if you want to benefit from me, if you want to see the light that I'm offering to the world, then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So this is the, the practical life that Christ is calling us for, for spirituality, for union with him. Okay. And so the first thing that kind of maybe pops out at us from this is that the idea of this spirituality is very much action focused, right? It's very much about our action. What is it that I will choose to do? How is it that I will choose to live? It's not just a belief system, right? Because clearly in Christianity, of course, we know that there are certain things that we must believe. But it is not only belief. It's not only about what I believe. It's not only if, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
I believe that he was crucified on the cross. I believe so many different things, right? That Christ said, I believe in the Bible, for instance. But the belief is not enough because when he said, well, anyone who wants to come after me, it's not just believe in these facts. It's not just believe in this information. It's not just believe that I am the son of God. No, it says deny yourself, like deny yourself. Like it takes it to a very personal level that we are called to personally do something in order for us to benefit from this light that Christ is shining on us. Okay, which leads us to this idea of self-denial, right? Because he says you have to deny yourself. What is self-denial? What does it mean to deny the self? To give up your desires. <clears throat> okay, to give up our desires. Okay. Can we give up desires? Not would. We can try. Okay, how would we give up a desire, for instance? Discipline yourself. Okay, discipline. Self-control. Self-control. So when we discipline ourselves and when we control ourselves, does that mean that we give up our desire? Like, have you ever been like, or let's say during the fast, okay? Mm -hmm. During the fast, there's certain foods we don't eat. Do we stop desiring those foods? No. We still desire them, right? Because we look forward to the feast so we can eat them. Right. So so even during periods of spiritual struggle and asceticism, we don't completely successfully abandon all of our desires for things. But we still control ourselves in the sense that I don't participate in those things, even though I have a desire for them. Yeah. Having higher desire. Okay. So this kind of gives us a spectrum of self-denial. Right. So there is a level of self-denial where it's like I am forcing myself like against my will to give up the things that my flesh wants, right? For the purpose of self-control. Okay, that's one level. There is a level that maybe when we read about in the lives of the saints where they get to, to where it's like what? Their thoughts, their minds, their emotions and everything has been completely what? Conformed to Christ. Like when St. Paul said what? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. This is a description of that status. It's like I have been crucified with Christ. There is nothing that I want apart from what Christ wants. And, and that certainly is a level, right, of self-denial. But simply because I'm not at that level yet, simply because, yes, I still desire things in the world. I still desire even sinful things. But I deny them. I deny myself them out of self-discipline. So what I'm trying to say is you can have self-denial. And you can have self-discipline and you can have self-control without necessarily the desires changing, at least initially. Right? Do we agree with that? Okay. This is a nice parable that Christ is speaking about. It's one of the parables of the kingdom, they're called. Okay. And Christ is saying what? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay. What do you think about what this man did? He seemed like the worldly attachment. But think about it just from don't don't think of the sim symbolism behind it right now. I want you to just think about what the man physically did. Like if you saw this man, this businessman, okay, who comes and does this, what would you think of him? He's making investment. He's making investment. Would you say it was a good investment? Yes. Yeah. It's a good investment. Like, like if you were to look at this just completely from a worldly perspective, nobody would look at this man and say, 
what you're doing is crazy. What you're doing doesn't make sense. What you're doing is ridiculous, right? Actually, we can clearly see the motivation behind what he's doing is actually his game, right? It's like if something is worth a billion dollars and I have to sell something that's a million dollars in order to get the billion dollars, well, then, okay, you would be dumb not to do it, right? And essentially, that's what this man did. He says, he said, what? If I know that there is something very, very valuable in this field, something beyond like any value of anything else, then I'm willing to sacrifice something that's of lesser value in order to gain it because it is of the highest value, right? It is of the highest value. So what do you think about why is Christ using this as a, a symbol or an analogy for the kingdom of heaven? Because he gave up something that was of value at the moment for something that will profit him later. Okay. So maybe about something that I'm going to benefit from immediately versus something that I'm eventually going to have. Okay, good. What else? Well, you can't, you can't have both. Okay, you can't have both. Okay, that's good. You can't buy the field unless you first sell what you have to buy it, right? Because you don't have the money to buy it unless you first sell what you have. Very good, right? That's a, that's a very good analogy of what the kingdom of heaven is about because you can't serve both God and mammon. Like you can't serve God and at the same time try to be attached to the world, right? Because he said what? If you want to be my disciple, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, sell all that you have, and then come and follow me, right? Okay, good. What else? It must be like this pleasurable to try to sell what you have. But it's worth it for the outcome that you're getting after you sell it. Okay, so maybe it doesn't feel good to sell what you have, but the justification of why you're selling it is actually a very logical and a very mathematical decision, right? You know, when when Christ is speaking about this, he's saying, like, do you think that you're really giving up so much? You know, he's, he's saying, I'm telling you that you have to give up something. That in and of itself is going to be destroyed. Like, like I give the analogy of like, let's say you have this mansion, right? And this mansion normally would cost like millions of dollars, okay? And somebody says, I'm going to give you this mansion. I'm going to give it to you for $5, you know? Just $5 is going to cost you $5, right? Would you pay $5 for the mansion? Would you pay $1,000 for the mansion? Probably we would pay $1,000 for someone to get me a mansion that would normally cost millions of dollars. But if I tell you that tomorrow the wrecking ball is going to come and destroy the mansion, would you pay $1,000 for it? <laughs> it would be a great one day. <laughs> I think most people probably wouldn't, right? Because you could do better things with your $1,000 than spend one day in a mansion, right? That's about to be destroyed, right? So the value of something is not just related to how much it actually costs or the value of it itself, but it's, it's related to how long it will maintain its value, right? How long it will maintain its value. If something is going to be very valuable, but only for one day or for one week, it's really not as valuable as it appears to be, right? And so, so what Christ is saying is, I'm asking you to give up the mansion that you will have for a day. Okay, and in turn, I will give you something far more valuable than the mansion that you will have for eternity. Right. That's the calculation. 
That's the calculation he's asking us to make. And what he's saying very clearly is, this is not a hard decision. Like This is not a decision that requires a lot of sacrifice. Like This is logically what we, anyone, from purely business mathematical perspective, would choose to do. So why is this hard? What makes this hard? Temptation. Okay, so what kinds of temptation? What do you mean by temptation? Anything that leads to you wanting desire or pleasure. Okay, so those things that we are asked to give up, right, in order to buy this field are desirable. But isn't the field desirable? I mean, this man, he said, you know, this treasure is more valuable than anything else. So why wouldn't I be willing to give up something that's much less valuable? Why? Because it's hidden. You don't see it. Okay, number one. It's hidden in the field. It's hidden. This is when we speak about the concept of faith in Christianity, is that we are asked to make decisions based on something that's hidden, right? This is this is the importance of faith, is because God is asking us to make decisions based on something that's not visible, right? He he somehow doesn't tell us how, okay? But he knew that there was a treasure hidden in this field. He knew it was there. Doesn't explain how he knew, but he knew. And his faith in that was so strong that he was willing to sell all that he had in order to buy this field, which is a big deal, you know. Like if he had any doubt that this was the case, you know, like if somebody told you, okay, there's this plot of land and it costs a million dollars to buy and you have to sell everything that you currently have to make the money and you can buy it, okay. But somewhere buried in this land is a treasure of a billion dollars, okay. Would you take it or not? Well, it really is going to depend on do you believe whoever is telling you that there really is a billion dollars buried somewhere, right? If you if you for sure knew that there was that treasure, then it would be easy to give it up, right? But because we have doubt about it, because we're not so sure about it, because there are some days we really maybe don't believe it, and we're confused by it, and maybe our senses tell us oftentimes in the world that it's not there, Right. Then we begin to like struggle. Right. Then we begin to struggle with our desires because our desires are like like a person who said it's immediate. Right. They're immediately there's immediate gratification in giving myself what I desire. Right. And it's for sure. Right. It's now and it's for sure. But it's also temporary here. This is something that's in the future and it requires a personal sacrifice. And most importantly, it requires me to believe strongly in the existence of something that I don't clearly see with my eyes, right? And this is also goes into this idea of that it is, it is a, um, it is, it requires faith, okay? It requires faith to believe. So this is very important. When Christ is speaking about self-denial, in order for us to rationally be able to deny the self, it means that we believe that we are denying something of low value to gain something of higher value. And unless I believe that's the case, I will not be able to deny myself. I will, I will not. Unless I believe that fasting is beneficial, I will not. What would make me choose to give up food that I enjoy for a period of time, especially when it's like during vacations and during all this time when everyone else is eating all this food? Why is it that I would choose to give up this food unless I believe that the benefit that I get from fasting is actually far greater than the meat and the chicken, right? That I'm denying myself. Right. So this is all based on what is it that I believe? 
Okay, and as we go to the the, the part at the beginning that said what Christ came to do is he be, he came to shine light, right? So imagine if this field is completely in darkness, and you don't see it and you don't understand it. But the minute that Christ begins to shine light on it, that means we begin to see it more clearly. We begin to see the promise of heaven more clearly. We begin to see what is the work of God more clearly. And that boosts our faith, faith to where we might begin to be able to make decisions like this. Okay, so what are some of the things that, you know, we should be denying? What are some of the things that Christ is asking us to deny? In order to go after this field, right? That I give it up so that it's easier for me to purchase this field that has this hidden treasure. Okay, the first one we'll talk about is ungodly relationships. Okay, he's asking us to give up these ungodly relationships. Proverbs 13 20, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Right? He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Many, many, many of us have been in ungodly relationships. And by this, I don't just mean like uh, like, uh, like between a man and a woman. I mean just any type of relationship of people that keep us from seeing this light of Christ. Keep us from growing in the church and growing in God and seeing things from the perspective of God. Because the ungodly relationship keeps us from what? from going beyond the bounds of the world, right? Like we are we are attached to the world and these ungodly relationships keep keeping us from growing out of this, right? Maybe in my mind, I, you know, see that the life that God is calling me to live is a holy life, is a righteous life. And yet there are people around me that are constantly keeping me down. People that are like always like a source of temptation for me, okay? This is one example of something that we are called to deny. Laziness. Okay, is another thing, right? The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent man shall be made rich. How do you think that laziness is tied up with the spiritual life? It's not. It's not tied up with the spiritual life. How? Meaning you can't be lazy and and spiritual. And spiritual. Why is that? Because it's, if, if you're not growing, you're descending. It's, there's no stagnant. You can't have that state. You can't have the Garfield. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen. The reality is you're descending. You the comfort. The comfort, right? So this tells us something about what spirituality is. Like I said at the beginning, when you see what is spirituality, and we said spirituality is the opening of our eyes to see the light of Christ so that even though the room that we're in is no longer dark, but we can now see the light that Christ is shining on us in the room. Okay, Bishop Ioannis of Arbeya, he was a, a bishop and he spoke about prayer. He said the value of prayer is not measured by the degree of comfort one receives from it, but by the amount of toil. Right. Oftentimes, especially maybe in the West, <coughs> when people think about the idea of prayer, is that prayer is therapeutic, it's meditative, it's relaxing, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a release, it's a relaxation, right? And maybe we even associate it with something like yoga, okay? Like yoga is more of the Eastern uh, 
form of meditation where people sit and they just relax and they meditate in the okay but when we're speaking about <coughs> in the church of the spiritual life and we're speaking about prayer prayer is something actually that is difficult to do it's not that i'm doing it necessarily for relaxation it's not a relaxation exercise that's what he's saying the value of prayer is not measured by the degree of comfort one receives right it's, it's not like i'm going to go to the prayer and it's like okay if i receive comfort then yeah this is a therapeutic activity and makes me feel good about myself and good about my day and recharged and so then i'm going to go out and do my thing and then i come back from a long day oh yeah i gotta pray because prayer is going to be the thing that recharges me again. He's saying, no, it's not measured by the degree of comfort, but by the amount of toil, right? Because remember that in all of these things that we're talking about, and, and this is going to be something we talk about later, but that we have an enemy, right? And the enemy is one who what? The enemy is one who is always keeping us from growing, right? He's always keeping us from growing. And he is fighting us, right? So... The, like the enemy knows that if we are not lazy, if we are more focused on like uh, prayer and spiritual things, that we are, it's going to be harder, it's going to be easier for us to grow closer to God. So he's fighting us. He wants us to feel relaxed. He wants us to feel like, oh yeah, just spend your days, spend your time, however you want, right? Mm -hmm. We ask ourselves, do we do the minimum? Are we always doing the minimum? Sometimes like people will say, you know, they're not satisfied with their prayer lives. They're not, you know, encouraged to pray. We have to, is it because we're doing the minimum? You know, like imagine if you go to school to study something and, you know, the passing grade is like 70. Okay. And in every single class, all you're aiming for is a 70. I want to do the least amount of work to get a 70. So I could say, you know what, I'm passing every class and I'm going to graduate. And that's my standard, right? And, and at the end of the day, if I have a 2.0 GPA, I'm so thrilled, right? That this is, I'm graduating and I have C's and everything, right? Do you think that if our aim was to get C's and to get a 70 and anything that we will feel fulfilled by our career or fulfilled by our education? Our goal here is not fulfillment. Our goal here is not to try our best. Our goal here is not to push the envelope of what we can achieve. Our goal is just, I want the minimum score possible so that I don't get kicked out, right? And sometimes we approach the spiritual life this way. Like, what is the minimum that I can do possibly in order for me to still be on the good list, right? In order for me to say, you know what, I'm still doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to pray for just a couple minutes. I'm going to, you know, fast maybe a few days. Like playing uh, 11th hour workers? Okay, yeah, like the 11th hour workers, that parable. Like where I'm going to come at the very, very last hour, okay? And maybe I squandered the whole rest of the day. Right. So is that is that our mentality? Right. We are we are struggling with this idea of laziness. And maybe the right way for me to put it is spiritual laziness, because when it comes to the physical world, we, we work hard. You know, a lot of people work really hard. They work long hours. And this actually what makes the spiritual life all the more difficult, because when we come home from the very long hours of work, the last thing that's on my mind that I want to do is more work. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is work. That's what Bishop Yohannes is saying. Bishop is saying prayer is work. So when you come home and now you're thinking, you know what, I just want to relax. And God is saying, no, it's not time to relax yet. Right? We have more work to do. And that work is the work of prayer. That's why I'm saying don't look at prayer as a relaxation exercise. Because my relaxation exercise, I want to go and sleep. My relaxation exercise, I want to go watch TV. 
You know, that's my, that's, if I, if you were to tell me what do you want to do to relax, it's probably not going to be prayer, right? So, so prayer is a spiritual Christian work that we do to grow closer to God. It's an activity. It's, 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 it's intentional. And so that's one of the things that we should be selling in order to buy the treasure that's in the field, right? We are selling our relaxation. We are saying, I'm giving it up. I'm giving up more of it at least. And I'm giving more of that, what would have been my free time, more to God so that I can grow closer to God in it. Okay? Yeah. Prayer is peace yielding. <coughs> it yields peace. It can yield peace. It can yield peace. What I'm saying is, it doesn't always yield peace, at least not right away. Right? So, so a lot of times when... When we know that we should be praying, it's the last thing that I want to do, right? If every single time I prayed, I had an immediate comfort, an immediate joy, an immediate sense of peace, then all of us would be doing it all the time. And nobody would have to tell me to do it, right? It would be like telling you, you must eat chocolate cake all the time, right? You must eat pizza all the time. No one has to tell people that they have to do that <laughs> because it's joyful. It's, in, it's something that you enjoy doing on your own. The reason that we're always telling people, no, you need to pray more. It's like, oh, you know, I, I'm struggling to pray. I'm struggling my prayer. Why? Isn't it like pizza and chocolate cake? No, it's not. <laughs> right? So, so what I mean is, even though in the long run, prayer produces peace, and even though in the long run, prayer is absolutely necessary and joyful, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way in the moment. Right. And especially when we're like establishing a spiritual rule that we're still getting used to it and we're not there yet. It's difficult to pray. It's difficult to fast. It's difficult to do things that are necessary for the spiritual life. Right. And we don't necessarily get immediate joy from it. Right. Maybe in the long term. Yes, there is joy, but we don't get immediate an immediate like rush of good feelings necessarily when I do it. You know. Another thing that we are asked to deny, right, is ungodly pleasures. And in Proverbs 21, 17, it says, He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Why is that? All of his investments are going to go towards pleasure, not the actual goal that we're supposed to get. Yes, that's right. If, if you look at it from the perspective of just like a, a person who, you know, is uh, in like not, not from the spiritual perspective, but just look at a person in the world. A person who all they care about is pleasure is not going to want to work. That's why they're going to be a poor man. All they're seeking after is wine and, and, and oil and, and all this stuff. They're not going to be successful in their life because all they're seeking after is like their, 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 their feelings. And their 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 pleasures right a person who other you know i'm sure all of you who wake up early in the morning and go to work you very likely would have other things you would have preferred to do instead of that that are more enjoyable right and yet we know that we have certain things that we are have to do in order to be successful in the world and and the same is true spiritually there's a lot of analogs between the spiritual life and and just our normal day-to-day -day life that we are asked to do Right. And, and to be successful. Right. You can't decide to go to work whenever you want. You, you, you can't decide to work the days you feel like working. Those are not the way that you decide when to go to work and not. And you know that if you don't do it, 
then there's going to be bad consequences, right? And the same is true with the spiritual life. And here it's saying, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. Unfortunately, like, this is what people live for. Like, this is the definition of success. The definition of success in the world is a person who doesn't have to do anything, but seeks after pleasure all the time, right? Instead of pleasure being, you know, part of our life, like some 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 downtime or something that we enjoy during parts of our life, right? But this has become now the goal of the world. He who loves pleasure, right? And this is how how success is measured. This is why when people want to be billionaires, right? Because the one, you don't have to go to work every day and you don't have to do all this stuff, but you can spend all of your money just making yourself feel good, like with all, you know everything that you're that you're doing, right? So this earthly success. And this earthly pleasure is a big distractor, distractor from the life that God is calling us to. He's saying, sell all that you have and come and buy the field that has the treasure in it. But if we value this world so much and all the attachments in it, I don't want to sell this. Why would I want to sell it? You know, I, I, I am enjoying this. And you're telling me to sell it for something that I don't really understand and for something that's going to come later and for something that is invisible and hidden and I don't really know if it's there or not like why would anyone choose to sell what they have for that right this is something else that um that he's asking us to deny saying you have to believe right you have to believe that there is something better than this also we're asked to give up our rights okay in first corinthians chapter 6 saint paul speaks about a scenario where uh, two believers two christians were having a dispute amongst themselves and how is it that they resolve the dispute? Okay. And here he says in verse 7, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Okay, what does this mean? Basically saying, why are you letting your pride get in the way? Okay, why are you letting your pride get in the way? In what way? What is he saying that they're doing wrong? Not denying themselves and want to prove that they're right. Okay, wanting to prove that they're right, um, but by doing what? What is it they're? What is it that they're doing? Suing someone from their own brethren from the church. Okay, so they're going to the court, right? So that the court would resolve a dispute between these believers. Okay, um, so is that wrong? So why is he saying this? Because it's um, it's preferring the self over the peace of, of the body of Christ. You're dividing the body of Christ for the sake of your own interest. So what happens when there's a dispute? What should happen? Going to court is not particularly simple. <laughs> I'm just saying what he said. <laughs> what does St. Paul say about it? Okay, so in the first part of the chapter right before this, okay, he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? What does that mean? 
Yeah. So he's saying what when when and then elsewhere as well as well. He says, okay, when you have a dispute with another believer, you take this dispute first to the church. And you even have witnesses. You can say this is what happened. And the church can mediate between the two people that have a dispute. And only when that hasn't worked because the people reject the wisdom of the church in it, that's when, when people go then to the law. Right? So even for instance, like like um in, in, in many matters of disputes between people. Like the people are encouraged to get the church involved and the church can mediate between them. So they never have to go and actually have lawsuits. In practice, we know that it does happen. And that's because people don't accept the church's, you know, judgment on it. But what here St. Paul is saying, he's saying, um, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints meaning the church. It's like if, this, if the church is going to be the one that judges the world, right? Doesn't essentially the church have greater wisdom and greatest authority for judgment among these matters between the believers rather than the secular courts, right? And that's what he's trying to say. But he goes on a step further and he says, but what about just accepting to be wronged? <clears throat> you know, like, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated as compared to what? Going to court in front of the unbelievers and then making a bad name for Christianity in front of them. That's why he says in verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Right? The aim of this is saying what? When Christians go to court against one another in front of unbelievers, then it destroys their witness of Christianity. Right? Because we are saying that we are loving people and we are all this and then... The, the people outside, when they see us quarreling and fighting with one another and going to court against one another, it gives a bad example to them. Okay? It gives a bad example to them. So he's saying, it would have been better for you simply to accept being wronged rather than to go to court against one another in front of the unbelievers and give a bad wit a witness to the world about our faith. That's what it's he's saying. basically like saying, you know, when someone hits you, you Yes, it's very similar to that. Right? So, so here he's saying, why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? You know, it would be better for you to allow yourself to be cheated rather than to make a bad witness for Christianity to the world. That's, that's the, the bottom line of, of what he's saying. But it brings up, you know, another thing that we become very attached to. And it's my sense of entitlement and the sense of what I believe I am owed. Right. I believe that I am owed many things. So that when those when people violate what it is that I believe that I'm owed, I believe that it is within my rights to curse them, to retaliate, to whatever, because it's, I believe that these are my rights. Okay, This is one more thing that when Christ says deny the world and deny yourself, it's one more thing we are asked to deny. Right? Deny even your own rights. You know, like the martyrs of the church that died for the sake of the faith. Right? When when they were denied their rights and they were even killed and they and they died, were they all they thought about and all they cared about was I'm being unjustly treated and, you know, I'm going to sue you because you treated me this way and I'm going to appeal to the courts that you treated me this way. Actually, what they saw it as what I'm giving up my blood for my savior, Christ, and they did so joyfully. Right. This is the spirit of martyrdom that has existed in the church for a very long time, generations and generations and hundreds and thousands of years, right? 
It is not the, no, I am t entitled to be well treated. And unless you treat me well, then, you know, I'm going to create some kind of, you know, petition and whatever it is to get my rights. Does it mean that it's wrong to defend ourselves or to want to get our rights? No. But there's a difference between being uh, hateful toward these people that are maybe denying us our rights versus accepting that this is something that God is allowing in my life, right? In Egypt, for instance, we see many, many people whose rights are violated all the time, and yet they are still joyful, and they still thank God, and they still see that God is, you know, protecting them and with them, and ultimately will bring them justice, right? So this is something else that we are asked to deny, right? We are asked to deny, you know, who, is, who we are in terms of what I believe that I deserve. Our wealth, okay? This is another big one. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. What do you think about this? The desire to be successful and accomplishing in life has nothing like it's absolutely legit. Like there is nothing wrong with it. If wealth comes with it, I didn't seek the wealth, but it just happened to come, and yet I am not so like desiring the wealth itself. I'm just desiring the success, or not desire even like I'm doing, giving my hundred percent mm -hmm. in what I'm doing, and the wealth is coming. Yet on the other side, if I am, all what I see is the wealth. I'm doing everything to earn money and seek after that wealth. That's where it becomes like a obstacle and that becomes like a roadblock for salvation. Mm. Um, that's, I think that's the one. No, good. Like, what is it that Christ said about people who are wealthy? So it's harder for them to get the kingdom of heaven. a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter to the eye of a needle. Think about that for a second. Okay? Like, we like to gloss over that. We live in a very wealthy society. Extremely wealthy. And, and our goal here is to be wealthy. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality. Right? That is the goal. We define ourselves by the wealth that we have. We compare our wealth to other people. Whether it not necessarily directly through money, but through the things that we have and the things that we show off, that's the reality of where we live. Like we, we have become so wealthy and we define ourselves by this wealth. But here he's saying what those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Those who desire to be rich. Again, it is nowhere ever that says that money is evil and wealth is evil. But the reality is, is that the more that we have, the harder the temptation not to be attached to wealth. Like I used this example before, like 2008 during the during like the financial crisis, there was a person who was a billionaire and he lost half his wealth and became like he had 500 million dollars and he committed suicide, right? Because he felt like he lost so much money, right? You know, we laugh about it, but like let's say I had 10 thousand dollars and I lose half of that money, you know, to me that's like a huge blow, right? But let's say to a person who has 10 dollars, 
you know, like they look at us and they're like, you're crazy. Like you still have $5,000 left. You know, it is, the point is, is that it is so easy for us to be attached to what we have. And the thing is, is that we might have lived without that for so long and we were fine. But the moment that now we tasted what it's like to have something and then that thing gets taken away. Now you realize how attached you are to it. You know, you really don't know how much you're attached to anything until it's, it's removed. Then you really feel the attachment. How attached was I? And for Christ to say it is easier for uh, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That reflects that because here he's speaking about a rich person. He's not just speaking about someone who desires riches, because the reality is that the riches is such a temptation that for many many people it 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 it, it, it creates such an attachment to it that they're not thinking about anything else. Which is why you know when we we ask God like. God, why didn't you allow me to be as successful financially as, say, another person? I actually say, thank God that I am not, right? Wherever God has placed us, wherever God has put us, thank God that this is where he sees it is appropriate for me to be. Which is why we should get out of our heads this idea of these lofty goals that I want to be like Jeff Bezos and I want to be like these really, really ultra-rich people. Because honestly, those people are miserable, okay? I mean, completely, right? So, so. Instead, we say, okay, God, I don't want to stop like thinking about, okay, where I could eventually be and think of, thank God of where I am today. If God doesn't want me to earn any more money beyond what I have now, thank God. Why? Because the desire to be rich, what? Uh, will, will, will make me fall into snares. That it is harder for a camel to enter, uh, for a rich person to enter into heaven than a camel to enter into the eye of a needle. That is the danger of riches, right? In this analogy, in this parable, this man, he was able to sell all that he had in order to enter heaven. But do would we do this? You know, that's like what St. Anthony did, right? Would we be able to do this? You know, very hard. The last point I want to speak about is this, um, is to giving up the will, okay? Which is a very difficult one to give up. Uh, in Romans 8, it says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The will is what my, 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 my control over myself. This is my will. What I choose. Like we are the only creation that God ever made that can make choices. The only ones. So if you look at any other creation that has ever been made, all of the things that they do were in line with the will of God. You know, we always use like the example of Jonah the prophet, right? In the book of Jonah, you see so many different things happening and everything is following God's will except for Jonah the man, right? Like you see like the, the storm that came when Jonah was on the boat came according to the will of God. God said there will be a storm and there was a storm, okay? The whale that came and swallowed up Jonah, the, the fish, it followed God's command, and then God told it, go swallow up the prophet, and he went and swallowed it up. When God told it, go spit him out, he spit him out. Okay. When God chose for there to be a plant that grows, it grew. When God chose for there to be a worm to eat the plant, the worm ate the plant. And everything in the story, everything obeyed God except for the man. The man was the only one who had the option and the choice to choose something apart from God's will, and he exercised that choice against God's will repeatedly, over and over and over. And this explains why the world is in such a state of destruction, 
that it is in today is because our choices have caused it to be so. It's because our sin has destroyed the world that God made to be good. So this self-will, this carnal mind, this desire for only uh, self-fulfillment, right? And self-fulfillment that is driven by blindness. And if we go to the example at the beginning, if you had a person who is completely blind and you tell them to do what's in your own best interest, they're going to be confused as to what is in their best interest because they don't really understand. They don't know, understand the environment around them, right? To be able to do what's in their best interest. There could be a fire in the room and the person just hanging out there because they don't understand or realize there's a fire. There could be a burglar in the room. There could be someone pointing a gun at them and they have no idea that they're in danger. That's the state that we are in as, 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 as humanity. It's like we are blind. There are all these dangers around us that are seeking to destroy us and we are just kind of oblivious to it. And we're just doing our thing oblivious to the dangers around us and thinking that everything is going to be fine, right? And so this is the self-will. When God says, deny yourself, he's saying, deny your will, right? Stop going after the things that you think are important and start going after the things that God is declaring to be important, even if you don't understand why they are so, right? And that's the biggest part of this, is we, have, we are now in a place where we want to be convinced of everything. I, in order for me to do something, first convince me. If you don't convince me, then I'm not going to do it. How can we be convinced when Job is justifying himself to God and he's saying about how he has done nothing deserving of all of the calamities that have come upon him? And he's just justifying, justifying, justifying. Okay? And, and God comes in and he says, What? Who is this who darkens counsel without, with words without knowledge? Meaning, who are you to be able to declare these things? He says, what, I will, I will question you as a man and you will answer me. Can you imagine if God came to you and says, I will question you as a man and you will answer me? He's like, okay, I'm in trouble now. Like God is putting me on the spot. He's saying, where were you? You know, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the rain? Where were you when I created the snow? Where were you when I created all this? He's like, I have no answer, right? This is the knowledge of God compared to the knowledge of man. And yet, with our limited knowledge, we declare ourselves to be greater than God and to have all the answers of everything and to have full understanding of everything. So when I see God is choosing a certain way or choosing a certain path, or God is saying, I want you to trust me because I know better than you know, instead of rebelling and saying, no, you don't know better than I know, I know the best and I'm going to do what I think is appropriate. Here, God is saying, you have to give up your self-will. Because as long as you have your self-will, right, that is against the will of God, because the carnal mind is enmity, enemies of God, right, then how can I ever give up my life for him? How is it that I can ever gain this field? Because this is what God is saying. God knows the field, and he knows the treasure that's in the field. And he's trying to convince us to sell what we have so we can purchase the field. This is the whole game. This is the whole spiritual life. God is saying, hey, give up that stuff over there. Sell this stuff so you can buy the field. And we're like, no, I'm not going to sell it. I don't want to sell it. I, I think this other stuff over here is much more valuable. And God says, no, it's not more valuable. Just sell the stuff you have and buy the field. And the treasure in the field is greater than the treasure you have. And we say, no, it's not. You know, And it's a fight. And that's essentially the, all of the sin that we commit and all of the self-justification that we do is all part of our blindness and our weakness that keep us from following what God has said. So it's very important for us in the light of all of this to look back at this uh, parable. Let's go back to it. Okay. 
Because this parable really explains, you know, our entire role in salvation. He said God came into the to the darkness and he turned on the light so that we can see. But many of us still have our eyes closed. And despite the light that's around us, we still cannot see. Despite the light that's around us, we're refusing to open our eyes to perceive the light. And we're walking blindly. The world is walking blindly, even in the midst of all the light that God has created. And they don't even realize that there is now light. Right? Before Christ came, like we're speaking about the period of the nativity, even if we opened our eyes, it's still dark everywhere. And there was no one that could be saved and there was nobody that could see or understand. Now God is saying what? I turned on the lights. So now it's up to you to open your eyes. You know, blessed are the eyes that see and the ears that hear. Right? And this is the most important thing out of this. Okay? Is that Christ is calling us to sell what we have figuratively. I'm not saying literally. To figuratively sell that what we have in order to buy this field, which is the eternal life that has this great treasure in it and this is all part of the the nativity why is it that christ came why is it that he is coming to redeem us and how he is bringing us to the kingdom of heaven if anybody have any questions about this i have a question yeah what is it sorry what so what if your desire for wealth is to help others so it's a slippery slope okay because it's easy for anyone to say the reason I want to be wealthy is so that I can give the wealth away, right? Maybe I have very genuine and sincere desire for this, but we shouldn't discount that wealth itself is a temptation. So the moment that I do have it, is it going to be so easy to give it away? The minute that I have it, is, it gonna, is that plan that maybe is a genuine and sincere plan that I have, is it going to be so easy for me to just give it away? It's it's difficult, right? And and that's why Christ makes it very clear that this idea of wealth is a temptation. So if 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 God sees that it is not appropriate for me, or it is a snare and a temptation for me to be wealthy, then we ask God to take the wealth far away from us. If it is the will of God that we are wealthy, so that we could be very generous and you know giving money to the poor and all this, great. Then then let that be according to God's will. But I shouldn't be thinking that I. I'm strong enough to necessarily be able to fight against this temptation of being wealthy, even if it's for the purpose of wanting to, to give to the poor. Any other comments or questions? Okay, glory be to God forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and the blessing of celebrating this season. We remember, O Lord, you're coming to earth, and you're guarding and protecting us, so that we see, O Lord, the light that you have shined upon us, and we can understand your life-giving words, and see, O Lord, the path of salvation that you have opened for us to walk in it, and to return home, O Lord, into the kingdom that you have created for us from the beginning. We ask, O Lord, that you open our eyes, so that we can see clearly, O Lord, our own weaknesses. We can see, O oh Lord, the temptation of this world that is around us and see, O oh Lord, all the, the attachments that we have here that keep us, O oh Lord, from enjoying all the free gifts that you have given us. Grant us, O oh Lord, peace in our lives and grant us, O oh Lord, not to be distracted or led astray by all of the attachments and things in this world that seek to keep us preoccupied from 
detaching ourselves from this world and purchasing, O Lord, the field that you have called us to purchase. Teach us, O Lord, your ways. Bless the service, O Lord, of the church, and bless all those who are standing here before you. Grant us, O Lord, a blessed nativity fasting to see, O Lord, to the end in the nativity feast. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, and power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.